We This is the fourth in a series on uh, developing strong sales resistance. Genesis 3, and let's begin reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Amen. Father God, we come to your word this morning asking that you would open our, our eyes, our hearts, and enable us to uh, become better stewards as a result of uh, the principles that we learn. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to preach your word faithfully. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I mentioned last week that one of the dangers, I think, that um, we Christians face is to divide one portion of our lives from our Christianity and to think, you know, maybe it's okay to... Uh, you know, preach on things like, um, you know, raising families and devotions and evangelism and things like that, but uh, to preach on politics or economics or business, uh, let's not do that. And uh, we saw that that is, Francis Schaeffer, he referred to that as the sacred-secular dichotomy. And it is both unbiblical and it is dangerous. It's unbiblical because Christ said that he claims every square inch of life, and it's dangerous because if this is not being related to Christ, then, and he's not ruling over it, then who is? Who's ruling over every other square inch of life that we've not devoted uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ said, if you're not for me, he was not for me, is against me. And I think it's possible for Christians to not only be against Christ in the area of economics, and you see it all over the city, but it's also possible for us to be taken captive to Satan's tactics. And so we've been going through and looking at some of the tactics that Satan has been using uh, in this chapter to sell his snake oil to Eve. Uh, ignorance is not bliss. We saw that was the case with Eve. Uh, that was her weakness. She did not have any experience, and so she was easily deceived. Uh, she didn't have a sin nature, but the lack of experience uh, did get her into trouble. And we saw that Paul in 1 Corinthians wanted believers to not be ignorant of Satan's tactics. Okay, and I don't think there could be a better passage to turn to than Genesis chapter 3 on what are the tactics by which Satan uh, lures people into sin. And we've been seeing that this not only applies to successfully resisting Satan. If you can get down the principles we've talked about in terms of resisting Satan, you're going to have what it takes to resist a politician who's trying to pull the wool over your eyes or a high-pressure salesperson who's come to your door. And so we've gone through quite a few principles so far looking at uh, Satan, the, the master salesperson. And uh, I want to just quickly review uh, where we have uh, covered so far. And actually, 
If you could put these up once we get up there. Boy, I don't know. Is the whole thing going to fit on there? Might have to pull off this top. And then um, let me give you what we've covered so far. And I'm just going to do it in one word or two word summaries. We've looked at the tactics of association, direct appeal, isolation, baiting, challenging loyalties, negative advertising, exploiting vulnerability, downplaying danger, inflated or exaggerated promises, exploiting ambiguities, winning trust, insider information, persevering and wearing you down, exposure to the product, feeding pride, redefining need, and exploiting hungers. And we gave the biblical tactics for how to resist each of those in the past. We're not, I'm not going to summarize those for you. Uh, but let's go on to tactic number 19. And if you look at verse 6, uh, this is what we're going to be picking up on here. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, we already dealt with that, that it was pleasant to the eyes. And I want to look at that phrase, that it was pleasant uh, to the eyes. This deals with the power of visual impact. Now, before we actually get to this principle, maybe you might ignore this, turn that off. And I'm going to give you a little bit of background so that you can see that this really does uh, flow from uh, this text. When God said that, that Eve saw that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes, he implies that she knew the difference between pleasant and unpleasant. Now, that may not seem so profound of a statement, but many people's theology denies uh, that that statement is possible. In fact, many people think, how could there be anything that would be unpleasant prior to the fall? Isn't the fall the, the thing that brought unpleasantness uh, into the world? And answering that question has a lot of profound ramifications. It's not a purely philosophical question. Uh, we're not going to have the time to go down all of the rabbit trails. We could on that. But let me just give you a little bit uh, of, of an idea uh, on this and look at the law of entropy or the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, Gary North, in his book, Is the World Running Down?, I think shows very satisfactorily that the second law of thermodynamics was not a result of the fall. It was built right into creation. Otherwise, there would be no way of being able to smell a flower, which requires random dissipation of the ethers and the microscopic particles and random mixing in the air. I mean, that's that's involved in that. There would not be the possibility of the sun being able to give light, if you understand how the sun works, of the sun giving light and heat to the earth unless that law was in some way working. Now, I believe the fall cursed the law of entropy and affected it in, in some way, but the basic principles of that law were working in a hundred different ways uh, all around them. Now, Death in the animal realm came only after Adam and Eve's sin, right? I think Paul makes that very clear. But that was not the case with plant life. Uh, if the first snack that Adam had was a carrot, a plant died, right? Uh, but that's a totally different kind of, uh, of a situation than what was brought in terms of a curse on the world. And I think there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly the curse did bring into the world. The curse brought thorns and thistles, but it did not do away with the need to subdue uh, creation. In fact, God commanded him to subdue the earth. If there was no gardener in the Garden of Eden, eventually that garden would go to pot. Uh, there weren't thorns and thistles, but I tell you, those branches would be getting so thick that eventually it would be a choked out tree. There would be all kinds of things that a gardener would have to do. And uh, he tells, when he says subdue the earth, if there had been no fall, eventually 
what God modeled of how this can take place of doing the earth and the garden, eventually that would take place in the whole earth. That entropy, you know, the natural way that a yard is going to go and that garden would go if nobody gardened it, uh, that uh, entropy would have to be dealt with by gardening, even if there was no fall. Okay, that's a little bit of background. Now, the fall distorted that entropy, as I've already mentioned, and applied the curse to it. And, uh, and, and yet there were, there were things that were going on like the deterioration of fruit and fecal matter and other substances would be at work. That's why Adam had to tend the garden. It would get other, uh, overgrown otherwise. Now, we're starting to get close. You can turn that on again. We're starting to get close to getting back to our topic. Rotten fruit smells. Okay, rotten fruit, rotten smells, I think, could exist prior to the fall. I think that would be the very nature of the enzymes and the acids and other materials in the fruit, which means that there could have been pleasant, so-so, and not-so-pleasant smells. There could have been pleasant, so-so, and not-so-pleasant visual stimuli, okay, visual sights that uh, they would take in. And Eve had the ability to discern what was pleasant and what was not pleasant. And this whole issue of pleasantness, I think, uh, is a key to understanding why it is that advertising is so successful in this arena. This is, a, this is a big point for them. She would have had the same kind of discernments that we do in terms of the physical eyeball. And we might think, so what? Well, it means that our eye gate is just as subject to the attacks of Satan and temptation as Eve's eyeball was, her eye gate. And uh, it's true, she did not have a sinful nature, but she lacked experience, she lacked knowledge. Paul tells us that she was deceived, and we've already seen that. And so presented with unattractive and attractive, she'd nav- naturally gravitate toward the attractive. Presented with pleasant and unpleasant, I think she would naturally gravitate toward that which was pleasant. And I think that's all the passage is saying. There was nothing wrong with her judgment in seeing this fruit as being pleasant to her eyes. It's what she did with that information that was the problem. And, and uh, uh, the reason I bring this up is that there's a lot of people who have incredible anxiety because they recognize that something, maybe it's a luscious piece of pie, you know, their particular besetting sin is gluttony, that something or someone is beautiful, is pleasant to the eyes. And because they've been trying to resist their besetting sin, and they're, they're surrounded by all of these images of brownies and uh, all of the kinds of things that get at them, they try to deal with the sin in an unbiblical way. And what they do is they begin to despise God's handiwork and creation, and they begin to impugn bad things to what God has given as pleasant. And rather than going after the real enemy, they try to get rid of the product. Now, sometimes that's appropriate. For example, Adam should have used his authority to command... Uh, Satan to leave the garden. Uh, there are times where we, you leave or you command something to leave or you get rid of a product. But uh, I want you to notice in this passage that God's available solution was not to dig up the tree and to dispose of it. God's solution was not to put a giant tent over this tree so that people wouldn't accidentally see that the, the fruit was pleasant to the eyes. Okay, that's the solution that happens in Muslim countries when they put this great big old bag over the women, you know, so that nobody can see their face. They think that's the way to deal with lust. You dig up the pleasantness. You attack the pleasantness that God has put into creation. And that is not a biblical way of dealing with things. 
And there are many Christians who have gotten into that. They hate their sins so much that they begin to hate anything that is remotely related that could be attractive, uh, attractive to their sin. And so it's important for us to distinguish between the temptation and giving in to the temptation. Christ was tempted in all points just like we are, and yet we, he was without sin. If he was in the Garden of Eden, side by side with, with Eve, I think what would have registered in his head is exactly the same thing registered in her head. Hey, this fruit is pleasant to the eyes. But what have also registered in his head was, this is taken off, this is crossed off the list of my stewardship responsibilities, okay? I don't have to cultivate this for food. And I, hopefully you get the point there. Now, with having closed off the wrong avenues of dealing with this problem, let's look at the problem itself. Tactic number 19 is where advertisers recognize the power of visual impact in making people overlook defects in their product or in other ways manipulating, uh, manip manipulating them. And this can be done not just in the beautiful magazine, you know, the glossy pictures that you see, it can be as simple as, um, you know, used car lot dealer, very wisely, pressure spraying the, the engine so that it looks shiny, it looks new. Because for some people, if it looks good, it is good. That's as far as their discernment goes. They, they, they do it in terms of, uh, of looks. And actually, this is the way I think many people vote for um, politicians, <laughs> vote for presidents, you know. If it looks good, it is good. And you, you ought to have fun on this sometime. Just experiment with your children to see the level of discernment that they have. Take them shopping with you on something they don't maybe know a whole lot about and ask them, okay, if we're going to buy a computer here, or we're going to buy a CD or you give them some product, which one should we go for? And the younger the children, the more likely it's going to be that they're going to pick the prettiest thing, the, the one that looks the coolest. Maybe that's got the most buttons on it, right? And uh, even after you sit them down... And you talk to them and you share with them the different features uh, and how, you know, this, this one here, it's beautiful, yeah, but it's covering a lot of defects. And this one has got much more quality. They still many times will go after the, uh, after the thing that looks cool. Because, as I put over on the presupposing there, what we see tends to have a stronger control on decisions that we make than what we think. And I'm going to try to demonstrate uh, why, that is, why that is true. Um, how do we resist the sales tactic? Well, first of all, it helps to simply understand the power of vision to frame our thinking falsely. And understanding it alone is going to make you more cautious. Judges in American courts, they're trained to recognize this. There can be two witnesses who see the same scene, the crime scene. They've been witnesses of it. And yet, because they're looking at it from different perspectives, sometimes different predispositions, they can sometimes come to totally different conclusions. And so they're, they're trained in, in, in recognizing that. They, they know that you can't trust your, your eyes all of the time. And we need to have a healthy caution, even if it's your children, by the way. You know, you, you come into the room, you see the, the kids having an altercation, and just based on what you see, you jump to a conclusion. And how many of you have made mistakes? I know I have. If I had come into the room five minutes earlier and seen all of the things that went up to that altercation, it may have come to a totally different conclusion in my mind as to who was at fault and what was going on. And I think what we see tends to have a stronger control of our decision-making than what we think, and we need to resist that. Now, the second ad antidote is... Um, well, actually, let me, let me deal with this a little bit further. 
Proverbs 28, verse 26 says, He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. Okay? Um, the power that vision has to frame our conclusions, I think, has been studied very, very carefully by the television, media, advertising. They've made it almost a, a science in how they, can, um, uh, how they can manipulate people through what they're allowing the people to see. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever had an opportunity to have people expert in this area show you the way that the news media works on this. I think one of the most fascinating classes that I attended was in California, and there was a guy who was expert in the area of media, and he showed all kinds of different uh, video clips, explained what was going on, rewound it, and he, he, would, he would show the kind of emotional impact it had upon us, how it affected our thinking. He would rewind it again and show exactly how the framing Sometimes it was lighting, it was the, uh, the, the visual framing, sometimes even the angle of the camera that made all of the difference. Uh, he pointed at one example. You could have the same guy walking in exactly the same way, and he could either be a good guy in your thinking or a bad guy just based on the camera angle and the lighting. It was just a fascinating class. And let's just test it with yourselves. You've all watched movies probably where you're almost made to sympathize with and you're rooting for the bad guy. He's the hero because the movie wants you to sympathize with him and you're scratching your head and you're thinking, you know, this guy's really a sinner. Why is it that I'm rooting for this guy and I'm hoping he's going to get away with the evil that he's right now doing? I mean, I've had it happen to me. I think most of you, if you've watched enough movies, have probably had it happen to you. What it is, is they are manipulating you into your sympathies going with one or the other person. It's just the nature of our sight. And many people don't know the weakness that just as creatures has nothing to do with sin. Now, there's sin that makes it even worse, but it's just a part of the weakness of our uh, of our vision. And uh, uh, our tendency is to favor what looks pleasant over what looks better, uh, or what is better and what is wiser and what is more biblical and that affects our purchases. And so the first step, recognize the power of vision to frame our thinking falsely. Teach your children how to recognize this. Take them to the store. Uh, have them choose. They pick the, 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 the cool product, and it's maybe defective, you know, in terms of some of the features. And you, you, you have them sit, sit down and look at the features and say, this one's only going to last so, so much time. Here's the money you're spending on it. Try to walk them through the problems that, 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 that sight presents. Now, the second antidote is to think of every purchase as a stewardship act. You need to ask yourself, does God want me to purchase this? And a lot of Christians don't even, didn't even dawn on them. They should be asking that. You know, if it's pleasant, they just assume that's something I ought to have, I ought to be pursuing after. But we need to ask ourselves, is this something truly that would help in terms of my stewardship that God would want. Now, God delights in allowing us to have the pleasant things of life. I mean, he didn't bar Adam and Eve. What he did is he put constraints on their stewardship. He says, I'm giving you all kinds of pleasant things, but here's some constraints. Don't go outside of those boundaries. And we've got to understand what are my stewardship constraints. You know, if I'm purchasing this with a, with a credit card, the likelihood is that I'm going to be breaking some of those constraints like a budget. Does it fit within the plan? Is this something, if you've planned for it, you know, unless it's an emergency type thing, 
many times the, the, the credit card makes the purchase way too easy. So we've got to ask, if I buy this, is it going to keep me from buying something that's important down the road? Would this glorify God or is it only honoring my desires and my lusts? So think of everything as a stewardship trust. And, um, and then the third essential is to compensate for our weakness to visual impact by doing research. You know, when you're in the store, at least check the, uh, the, um, the features, you know, of the different uh, things that you are looking at. Uh, does three for a dollar mean I have to buy three? You know, almost never does it mean that. You can get it the same price for one, but three for a dollar, they automatically buy three. You've got to analyze and uh, think through things. And uh, I, I think too, too frequently uh, we depend more on the eye gate than we do on logical analysis. Now, I've spent quite a bit of time on this point because I think of all of the points, this is one of the weakest areas for Christians. So be aware of the power of visual impact to take you in. A lot of people will buy a car because it looks good. And if you took it to a diagnostic center, it'd be a piece of junk. But because it looks good, you you've went ahead and bought a lemon. Okay, 20th tactic used by satan was to offer fulfillment apart from god verse six again he goes on to say not only was pleasant to the eyes but it was a tree desirable to make one wise now there may be totally different areas of um uh, life that give you a sense of fulfillment you know the materialist many times feels fulfilled when he can buy more toys and show off more toys Uh, the brain feels fulfilled when when you know he can show other people how smart he is and all of the accomplishments he's had the workaholic finds fulfillment and other people noticing how hard he is where he works harder than anybody else and all of the accomplishments that he has the tycoon maybe feels fulfilled when he sees that others recognize he's got prowess in the area of of, of getting money and most people want to be important in the eyes of somebody okay and if nobody appreciates them they can very easily be uh, falling victim to this tactic. Many a young girl, I think, has uh, found herself lured into a bad relationship because the man has showed her all kinds of compliments, attention, made her feel needed, uh, made her feel wanted and important and, uh, and fulfilled. Eve found fulfillment in being important and in having wisdom others did not have. Two antidotes. First of all, you need to recognize what your tendency is. What are the things that your heart hungers for fulfillment in that are apart from God? What you need to do, crucify those, give them to Christ. The second tactic or antidote to this is to find your sense of fulfillment in God and in your relationship with him. And you think, okay, yeah, we we believe in that. But so many times it's the very opposite that we do. If a person... Uh, maybe a beautiful person finds fulfillment in all of the eyes, you know, that she turns. When she loses her beauty, she's going to become incredibly depressed. Uh, if a person finds fulfillment because he's a workaholic and it's in people noticing how, how good he is at working, he, he just does incredible amount of stuff, he's important, he's indispensable for the company, he's still never going to arrive because there's going to be somebody that's going to expect more of him than he's able to give. And I think even pastors can fall victim to this, you know, where they, uh, they work their tails off trying to please everybody. And because they can't please everybody, they work even harder. And so you've got to realize if you are serving, if you're not finding your fulfillment in God, you're, you've become a servant of creation. 
Let me read you a passage along these lines. Paul says, do I seek to please men? Um, if I still pleased men, and that was implying he once tried, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's basically saying you cannot find fulfillment in things and in people and at the same time find fulfillment in God because the two are mutually exclusive. Um, think of it this way. God doesn't need your... Um, hard work, all of your accomplishments, your brains, your money, your anything else, you know, all the things you do in an entire lifetime that you think count for something God could do in a snap of a finger. So why in the world does he have us doing them? The reason he has us doing them is not because he needs us. The reason he has us doing them is so that we can become conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us opportunity to depend upon him. And uh, if we are serving God then all of these things he has given to us are assets. But if we are serving the assets themselves, those assets turn into liabilities because they've become idols, idols that God destroys. And so we've got to think through that, 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 that whole area. Are we serving the Lord or are we serving uh, uh, someone else or something else? And uh, my brother, I just made a note here. My brother, later on in life, uh, came to the realization so much of his previous ministry, his teaching in the Bible college, his preaching in the, in the church and the other things, the sacrifices he made were nothing to the Lord. Uh, the Lord gave him a, 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 a vision of every, of the past of his life, all lying in ashes. And there was just little tiny specks of gold and the diamonds, a few diamonds here and there. But he said most of his life was nothing, absolutely nothing. And I think we need to make sure what we are pursuing is the Lord. We're seeking to be conformed to his image. We're seeing everything that he has given us in life is contributing to that. Now listen to a statement by David. One thing I have desired of the Lord. Okay, he's summing down the essence of life. So this has got to be an important thing. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's basically saying absolutely everything that God has given to me as a stewardship trust, my labors, my brains, everything else is for the purpose of seeking God, being conformed to him, knowing him and his presence, his power in my life. Paul said the same thing. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. They're basically saying the only thing in life that can really bring fulfillment is God. The rest, you know, seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. That's got to be our perspective. If our goal in life is to become rich, then it, it's going to be fleeting. Now, God is not against accumulating wealth. That's part of this series, God and prosperity. God wants us to to uh, continually grow in our ability to extend his kingdom and to, uh, and to handle money as a wise steward. But it's got, if we fall out of stewardship, we've gotten ourselves into trouble. And the only, the only antidote I know here, some of them I've given three, four antidotes, but that's the only antidote positive that I know is uh, cast off your fulfillment elsewhere, find your fulfillment in God. 21st tactic is the acronym KISS, which stands for keep it simple, stupid. Um, and you've heard, uh, heard that. Advertising by its very nature 
is simplistic. It has to be. I mean, if you looked at all of the complexities of a product that you were selling, nobody would read the advertisement, okay? Of its nature, it has to be condensed. And there is a, there is a certain appeal to simplicity, okay? There, there is an appeal to that. That's why the soundbite industry has uh, been so successful in, in the political arena and in advertising and business, even in the evangelical church. been very popular. People want to know, what is the bottom line? Now, when people give us the bottom line, we've got to ask ourselves, is this the true bottom line? We've also got to ask ourselves, what I heard this person saying is the bottom line, is he interpreting it the same way that I'm interpreting it? Because I'll be giving you some examples from advertisements that make it difficult, really, to d- discern that. And uh, uh, this is a, a big temptation for pastors. If their congregations don't want to think, it's so easy to just have soundbite uh, theology and to uh, uh, simplistically deal with issues rather than making people think through all of the complexities uh, of life. Uh, look at the sonship materials. I think there's a lot of good that are in the sonship materials, but I tell you, the rhetoric that comes out of sonship, it's almost reductionistic. Everything reduced down to this simple formula, and it leaves out so much. The lot that's good going on. I did the same thing this past Wednesday. We were talking about... Um, um, some question of nursing ethics. And I thought, uh, you know, I have a, a, a regular principle of life that's a good rule. And then I gave an answer based on that. But during the week, as I began looking at some of the complexities and the ethical subtleties that were involved, I began to realize I did not really deal with that issue in a biblical fashion. It's so easy, even in our arguments with each other, throw labels, you know, because it's a whole lot simpler to deal with the person or just write the whole person off. You know, he's a reconstructionist or he's non You know, just write them off rather than dealing with points uh, one-on-one. Now, let's apply this to advertisements. There are ads that seem to get to the bottom line when, in fact, they are misleading because of incomplete information. Here's one, and you've maybe seen this. This product offers more, and we need to ask more what? You know, if it's a computer, maybe they are offering more bundled shareware, <laughs> you know, with your, and they, they've got a lousy uh, architecture. Now, maybe it's more uh, processor speed, but they sacrifice on the backside cache or the FPU. We need to ask, this offers more than our competition is meaningless if the product is a complex product. You have to ask, well, in which of the slices of that product is it better than the competition? Okay. Now, here's another one. Tests prove that this product is better. And again, better than what? But you need to ask, what tests? You know, are these tests that were done by somebody independently? Somebody got paid off? Or is it tests in-house, you know, that are not really objective? You've probably seen ads that say this product has been tested and recommended by scientists and doctors. And you look into it and you find out, well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of true. There were some lab technicians there. There was a PhD and there was an MD and they all stand to get rich from this product that they're selling. Um, um, uh, Another uh, ad that we had looked at uh, did uh, rigorous testing in such and such a laboratory. It sounded like it was an independent laboratory, Um, but it wasn't. And the questions, again, that need to be asked is, well, was your product dropped on the floor as many times as the competitor's was? Was it dropped as hard on the floor? I mean, there's so many subtleties that, that people can, can be really misleading, like, um, 
like uh, Satan Satan was. Uh, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but the reason I say that he was misleading because of soundbite theology is he, um, he had one question and two statements, very little words, half-truths that were involved in them, and very incomplete information that was involved in his statement. I should have said that right up front. But uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is an area we just have to, be, uh, have to be aware of. By the way, this applies everywhere. It's hard to write a, an advertisement for the church without being misleading because you condense the information down to such a small point, people can read all kinds of things into there that aren't true. That's why Reformed people tend not to like tracts. They tend to like books. Their, their tracts are books, you know. Um, because we want to make sure people really understand what we are talking about. Now, here's the antidote, three of them. First, recognize the weakness so you're not so easily fooled. Secondly, learn to ask the investigator or the newspaper reporter type of questions. Who, why, what, where, when, and how. And then the third antidote there is the kick principle that I just introduced, what was it, last week or the week before that Andrew Sandlin gave. Kick stands for, it's the name of one of his essays, Keep It Complex, Knucklehead instead of kiss and uh, he points out you know how this kiss principle has really been devastating in complex areas like uh, an economy and where socialists have tried to plan an economy and it's just been it's been disastrous now there are some things that are simple in life and we ought not to make them complex but if it looks too simple to be true that very well may be okay we're not done with the series but let me end today with the 22nd tactic and this is to invert weakness or to sell based on implied claims to the very opposite of what the, the weakness is. What's the downside to eating this fruit? Well, God had said you will surely die. Satan says you will not surely die. Verse 4. Another downside uh, that Eve ignored was that she and Adam would be cast out of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so the very pleasantness that she wanted is something that's going to be denied to her as she is cast out. And what is uh, Satan's response? Are oh, you going to be like God? You're the ones who are going to be in control. And what kind of control is that? When you're outside the garden, there's an angel standing there keeping you from going to the tree of life until that garden is so overgrown uh, that um, it's no longer a garden. At first blush, this tactic may seem so bold and so obvious that it just be an ineffective sales tactic, and yet it's not. Satan is not stupid. He is not stupid, and the uh, advertising industry is not stupid. Take cigarettes, for example. Um, they take, the cigarette industry, they take the very point of weakness that you find in their product, and they have slogans and they have pictures that imply that this is their very strength you are not going to find a tobacco industry advertisement coming up on television where a guy says, okay, I want you to look at these uh, slides of the lungs of two smokers. On the left, you've got a smoker who's been smoking our product for 20 years, and on the right, you've got the lungs of a person who's been smoking our competitor's product. Now, ours is only 80% full of tar. This one's 90% full of tar. Smoke our brand, you'll live five years longer, or you'll die five years later than the other people will. I mean, you're not going to find that kind of thing. You're not going to find an advertisement that says, everybody dies anyway, why not die of emphysema, right? <laughs> uh, you're not going to find them saying, uh, if you buy $100 of our cigarettes, we will give you your first free cleaning of your home, 
and uh, show a picture of the guy scrubbing the walls, you know, where you got all this yellow, brown sludge coming down, okay? What do they do? The very opposite. They highlight a person with a cigarette who's out fly fishing in a beautiful stream that is so clean and clear out in the pristine Rocky Mountains, right? They're wanting you to feed. They don't have uh, an old hag, you know, that's coughing up sputum after two or three draws. Instead, they've got young people who are smoking, who can ride, who can run, who can uh, ride horses. They can compete with the best of them. Okay, what they're doing is they're looking at the very area that people might be stumbling over, the area of weakness, and they're inverting it into a strength. Okay, you see it all across the board. I'll just give one other example. You see it with the with uh, uh, banks or credit card um, uh, companies. Uh, they're trying to get you into financial bondage, and they're not going to advertise all of the long hours you're going to have to work in order to pay off this loan. They show you the swimming pool. Look, just picture yourself in this swimming pool, and uh, just with a simple you know, signature, we can get you all the money to get that swimming pool. What they fail to tell you is you're going to have to take a second job, and you won't have time to swim in that pool. <laughs> And uh, it's interesting. You look at the ads that are given by credit card companies, you will see the word freedom many times. Test it out. You will see the word freedom there. What they've done, they're saying, you're free to be what you want to be. You're free to have the kind of purchases you want to have. And so what God calls slavery and bondage, they call freedom. That's this principle at work. It's inverting uh, the weakness and uh, trying to turn it into its exact, into its exact uh, opposite. Um, antidote, if you guys can think of anything better, uh, let me know. But I just put down there, teach your children how to recognize the lies that uh, come in those advertisements. We will never prosper in life if we constantly have a consumer mentality. If we're constantly making purchases that are based on whims rather than on God's word and on wise decision. You know, I just read this past week um, a Windows 2000 advertisement. <laughs> that was doing the same thing. Uh, it was um, advertising how wonderful the server was because um, uh, in whatever company, it had only crashed five minutes. It was only five minutes of downtime, I think is the way they worded it, in a whole year. Well, I'm sure in that business, maybe that, that did that. But what they're doing is they're targeting the thing people fear the most. They're taking their greatest weakness and they're touting it as their greatest asset. Okay, it does not does not crash more than five minutes uh, in a year. Uh, I, I wish I had the version of Windows 2000 server that they do. But um, anyway, I was hoping to finish off the series today. And as I was preparing uh, yesterday, I just realized there's no way. So we're going to have at least one more one more sermon on this series. But I do want you to be encouraged. Uh, and it's so easy when you have the law, you know, looking you in the eye. Uh, it's very uh, easy to become discouraged. One of the reasons we begin, we have the word, and then we have communion, and we come here, is I want you guys to come already clothed in the righteousness so when the law throws its darts and its arrows at you, you're not, uh, you're not discouraged and blown away. You're realizing, okay, it's another sin. I need to put under the blood of Christ. I confess it. I turn from it. And Lord, I thank you for your, your strength and your grace that you've given to me. So don't be discouraged if you have been exposed as being incredibly weak in your sales resistance. Look to the one who is strong to live his life through you. He promises, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 
Okay, what's in the world? All these tactics that are being thrown at you. You can say, Lord, you're in me. You can help me to resist these tactics. 1 John 5 says, everyone who was born of God overcomes the world. Okay, that means he's saying there, there isn't any reason why every one of you cannot become strong in sales resistance. And so armed with more knowledge of what some of the tactics are out there, I want you to go out into this world determined by God's grace to be better stewards. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to live it out. I pray that we would have great joy in living it out, that any time that we stumble, uh, we would not uh, beat up on ourselves, but we would instantly look to you instead of to our own weakness. Yes, Lord, we have weakness, but let our weakness drive us to you and to your grace and to your forgiveness. We love you, Lord, and I pray that each one of us in this congregation would become far better in our stewardship, uh, the resources you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.